Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, now in our second year of bringing you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello everyone, I'm Kathy Imus. Today we're uncovering Hurricane Dorian, how the East Coast is bracing as the record-setting storm takes aim at the U.S. Resiliency Week, the move several states are already making to educate residents about the importance of pre-disaster mitigation. And Stronger Together, IBHS President and CEO Roy Wright describes how legislators, insurers, and individuals alike share responsibility for a resilient future. We start with breaking news this morning. Hurricane Dorian doing something hurricanes rarely, if ever, do. It is completely stalled now for a full day over the Bahamas. At least five people have died since Hurricane Dorian made landfall in the Bahamas over the Labor Day weekend. The Category 5 storm slammed into the island with sustained winds of 185 miles per hour and gusts up to a record-setting 220 miles per hour. Dorian also brought up to two feet of rain and a storm surge that could reach 23 feet in some areas. So far, an estimated 13,000 homes have been destroyed. As the storm weakens, Florida and the entire U.S. eastern seaboard remain a target. President Donald Trump declared a state of emergency in Florida, where all coastal counties have issued evacuation orders. South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia also have mandatory evacuation orders currently in place. This hurricane is a stark reminder of why pre-disaster mitigation is so important. While the start of September kicks off National Preparedness Month, 16 states are also recognizing Resiliency Week in early September. NAMIC worked with state lawmakers to dedicate this time to educating residents of the importance of planning ahead for natural disasters so that rebuilding after the storm is less costly. Since 1980, natural disasters have cost the nation more than $1 trillion. The Disaster Recovery Reform Act represents a major step toward a smarter disaster policy that will better protect Americans and reduce the need for disaster aid. The NAMIC-led Build Strong Coalition sent a letter to the Federal Emergency Management Agency last week calling for progress on the implementation of the DRRA. Though the law was signed in October of 2018, not a single major provision has yet been implemented. Maintaining the momentum of the bill's passage and keeping the pressure on FEMA is critical to ensuring the BRIC program and other policies in the DRRA ultimately lead to a measurable reduction in disaster losses. The Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety is also leading the resiliency effort by creating national construction standards. Its state-of-the-art research facility has enabled researchers to more fully evaluate residential construction materials and systems under realistic recreations of severe weather hazards. On this week's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness talks with IBHS President and CEO Roy Wright about feasible steps individuals can take to strengthen their homes. All right, well, my guest today on Insurance Unscripted is the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety's president and CEO, Roy Wright. Roy, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Chuck. Now, Roy, you're still relatively new to this role, uh, but in fact, and, and we've known you for years, worked with you for years in, in 
some previous roles. So maybe you can give us just a little sense of your background uh, prior to joining uh, IBHS. Yeah, so I, I joined uh, IBHS uh, late spring of 2018. Before that, I spent about 12 years with FEMA. The, the last three of those years, I was the chief executive for the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, and so a lot of the transformation that took place in that program, as well as kind of movement that I think is uh, given more space for private flood to take uh, hold uh, were all things that I was involved with there. Uh, and as I came to IBHS, while I still engaged in some of the discussions related to flood, the broader part of my role uh, in my last uh, position uh, dealt with all kinds of resilience across natural hazards. Uh, and so uh, it was a great opportunity to come to IBHS, where as far as I'm concerned, some of the coolest things that happen in the property space is we not only get to crash test houses and how they perform against hurricanes and wind and hail and wildfire, uh, but really then to seek to how you close that gap uh, and avoid so much of those damages. So it's been a great move. Well, clearly. And, uh, you know, coming to IBHS and really just right now, we're starting National Preparedness Month. And a bunch of states are recognizing resiliency for the first time with Resiliency Week uh, resolutions. But we know much of this, and you know, my way of explaining to our members, you know, how we engage, and we are, you know, consider ourselves kind of the advocacy point of the spear for much of the agenda that IBHS has. And it really started with our Building Codes Coalition way back in the day, post uh, 04, 05 hurricane season. Some of our members said, you know, we've just got to start doing something differently. And so we worked on a building code uh, piece of legislation that, that gave some some additional. Uh, disaster aid for states that adopted and enforced strong building codes. But it really did not. I mean, it was an eyes glaze over topic with congressional staffers as we talked to them back in the day. And really, when IBHS then, um, you know, built the research facility in South Carolina, that just turbocharged the agenda, allowed us to make it uh, much more broad. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I, I guess I'd just start with, you know, you've also worked around IBHS and now led it for uh, more than a year. You know, what kind of research um, are you working on at IBHS that, that is helping to, um, you know, address this need for us to, uh, you know, be pre better prepared for the next disaster? Yeah, so you, you kind of hit across those pieces because uh, I look at where do we see damages in the country, both insured and uninsurable from the natural perils. Uh, we've touched flood, but, you know, so much of it goes between wind and wind-driven rain, the impact it has on roofs. Uh, the kind of hail losses we see, um, you know, over recent years, seeing $18 billion worth of insured hail losses is not uncommon. And then this kind of uh, growing business uh, related to wildfire. And so our research agenda looks across all three and then how that translates into action. So let's walk across each one of those. So let's start with the roof. You know, depending on the company uh, we're interacting with, it's uh, pretty typical for, I, for me to be told that 80, 85% of the cat losses in any given year on property for residential uh, originate with the roof. And so we look at how does that connect? Uh, how do you tie that down? Um, but a tremendous amount of time and effort going into something we call fortified roof. Uh, this piece that goes how that roof is attached, um, how you deal with some of the edge treatments, but really particularly how you seal the roof deck. Most people don't understand what's underneath those asphalt shingles. 
we do the research not only to figure out what's underneath there, uh, but to understand what are the very practical actions you can take uh, so that you don't have to have um, that kind of high-end damage. You know, it's one thing to lose your roof cover, to lose your shingles. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to give you averages across the country. Um, but you see, and many people would know in their geography, what does a typical claim look like in that space? But if, when those shingles are lifted, water gets in place. And so for most people, all they have is four by eight sheets of plywood underneath there. If water starts going through those cracks, you get that penetration that begins to saturate not just the insulation, but the drywall and the belongings. And we start seeing claims grow five to eight times larger, and the family's now displaced. So we're looking at ways down that, not just to show the importance of it, but how do we see it move to be even more cost effective? So that sealed roof deck component, for example, if someone's already going through the process to upgrade their roof, that's you know, been on for 10 or 20 years, they're dealing with small leaks and they want to see progress there, there are actions that people can take between $500 and $1,000, well under what anyone's deductible would be, that can ensure that they will be able to withstand the kind of rain that can come. On the hail side of the equation, um, we're the only place that tests roofing products not with steel balls, um, but with real um, ice characteristic of hail. We do a lot of research in the field. We do 3D imaging to understand. There's a lot of gaseous properties inside that. The standard in the industry is a UL test that drops a two-inch steel ball. Um, now, I guess that's a fine thing to test, but you are as likely to have meatballs rain down on your roof as you are to have steel balls rain down on your roof. So why are we testing them that way? The meatballs are much uh, messier. Much messier. They are, and, and they, they are more akin to a childhood book about cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Uh, I haven't read the one about steel balls yet. But as you look at those elements, um, we're pushing to use the science to, A, a inform the, um, the consumers. And we have things on our website that look at specific uh, uh, manufacturers and the kind of work that they will do. But more importantly, how do we as an industry point the way so that the roofing manufacturers are producing better products that are more resilient. And then down the line of wildfires kind of round out these hazards that are driving our agenda. Um, you know, it's the events that played out in 16 and in 17 really gave the nation an eye opener uh, related to the catastrophic impact of wildfires. Uh, those events, the Tubbs fire, the Carr fire, the Woolsey fire, um, the Camp Fire in Paradise, California. Uh, you know, all those played out and there's a whole lot to be learned, but before someone just kind of jumps to a conclusion and says, yeah, that's a California problem, it's actually a national problem. We see these kind of wildfires play out in California, Oregon, and Washington. We see them in New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. In 2018, Chuck, the number two state in the nation for wildfire starts was Texas. Yep. Uh, we then look across, Gatlinburg, Tennessee had them, uh, inside the last decade, uh, they had a large-scale wildfire play outside of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. 
And so the research we're doing there on wildfire has really broad application uh, in understanding how we can deal with defensible space, how you can build um, to put the right defenses in place. We can't create a fireproof structure, but we can narrow the impact um, of those kind of destructive fires that we keep seeing more and more of. Yeah, that's a great overview. I mean, so thinking about our audience, and you know, it's mostly around the industry, um, you know, many with our member companies, and I do mean our jointly, since there's a high degree yeah. of overlap between NAMIC members and IBHS members and leadership and board membership, et cetera. Um, Absolutely. Tell me, you know, and, and, and so much of this and the, the important part that um, you all do around consumer awareness and, and really giving practical tips to people about why they should, uh, you know, engage in more disaster mitigation or make common sense decisions like, oh, I'm going to tape the roof seams, uh, you know, for a few bucks or do some other, um, you know, cost effective uh, changes that will prepare them better for the next disaster. But in terms of the industry, when we look at, you know, the member companies that, that you all have, um, what's the benefit to the to the member company? What do they get out of uh, IBHS besides the obvious benefit, which is to the extent that the rising tide of resilience lifts all homes and uh, structures, um, you know, we all benefit and as a society we benefit. But what about the individual company benefit? Yeah, I think let's walk across that, that value chain. Uh, so when we do the, the work and research, uh, we always have a public-facing version of that that you can find at disastersafety.org. Uh, for every bit we do, we're a 501c3, we have a public purpose and we serve that up. But underneath all of that research is far more data. Those data are only available to our member companies. Like uh, an example on the hail side, uh, we've gone through and done performance assessments of impact-rated um, shingles. Uh, and there's a listing of uh, 10 products that you can find on our website. Uh, only to our members do we then give the insight where we can show price comparisons and the specific data behind the different uh, elements of that that can then feed in. Uh, we don't get into pricing from IBHS, but our members take those data and use it in underwriting or in loss control. Um, particularly as I work with some of my regionals, we'll, they'll then take the, some of the products that we develop in terms of what to do, in, whether it's hurricane, whether it's high wind, tornadoes and derechos, uh, wildfire, hail, uh, and we will develop products that they then co-brand to push out. There's a tremendous amount of this that we do in the social media space where we develop those um, elements of campaigns and then partner with the companies to do it. Some of that goes directly out to consumers. Uh, a chunk of that we're watching uh, some of the member companies use to educate their agents. Uh, in so many ways, as we do the social science research on it, uh, you know, the kind of people uh, that uh, a homeowner is looking to for advice we continually see the insurance agent ending up in the number two or three slot in terms of who do you trust for advice about what to do for your home? Okay, well, that's a place why which this industry has a unique opportunity to speak into their consumers and give them the best advice. Ultimately, that translates into the amount of risk they have, and that risk translates uh, into a cost 
uh, but more fundamentally, it's about that long-term relationship. Those are the things that we uniquely are giving back to the companies, those kind of data, those kind of products, those kinds of abilities to teach. That then fills a broader uh, mandate that we have by which we are trying to educate the public. Uh, and we do that working through companies, through other partner organizations, um, quite a bit with the press. Um, the Weather Channel uh, spent a bit, big chunk of time here earlier in the month uh, and has been running a week-long series uh, as people prepare for hurricanes to specifically help them know what to do. Uh, we've done this uh, right now. It's on hurricanes, but there will be another one that deals with um, high wind uh, for the uh, Midwest. But we look at it and says, you know, what can someone do for $10, for $100, for $500, for $1,000? You know, showing people the exact actions that they can take um, that, while not everyone could afford, um, 25 or 30 percent of Americans would be able to plan and do that kind of home improvement. We've had a lot of fun uh, laying it out more of a, as a do-it-yourself project. Uh, and uh, we have to find ways to inspire uh, folks that take action. Because you, you talked about it, you know, NAMIC has been at the forefront of this resilience conversation going back um, a long time. You know, the Build Strong work that you all have led. You know, we do the science work. We build out the credible product in this space. Uh, but we rely on organizations, particularly NAMIC, uh, to then lead into the advocacy uh, portion of it. And you know, sometimes resilience was but a buzzword, uh, I think, for too long. People didn't quite know what it meant, but they wanted to be associated with it. Yeah. Over the last three, four years, we've really seen a turn in it where people are leaning in. Uh, you know, they're seeing the hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, these derechos play out. Uh, they see the losses uh, and they see the impact that that loss has on communities. And far more people are leaning in and wanting to do something about it. I think the challenge in front of IBHS as well as NAMIC is to broaden the coalition, bring more of those folks in, but tell them this isn't just about giving lip service. You need to lean in and help us get to finish lines and get real action in place. Don't just join the bandwagon. Yeah, and, and to that point, I know that uh, you testified earlier this year on a couple of uh, success stories around Congress's activity, including the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, or DRRA, which uh, you know we worked together on. and. I think your message, which I would just summarize as, you know, this is not all about the government and so much of what Congress focuses on and what FEMA and your formal ro former role, you know, focuses on is, you know, government role in disaster recovery. But really, it's up to individuals. And then, of course, the private sector insurance um, uh, plays a very important role as well. But I just wonder, you know, from that experience testifying, you know, do you have any advice for how insurers or, or legislators can help encourage Congress um, or helping encourage people to do the right things. Obviously, legislators will have a role with, um, you know, with Congress uh, making laws and regs uh, around how government functions around disaster, but the people part, and you talked a little bit about the, you know, the, the website and the, the public awareness and the media awareness. Um, what other suggestions might you have that would be useful here? Well, 
Yeah, so I think it, it, and you look, you speak about the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, uh, the DRA, uh, and of all the groups that leaned in and helped push that across the finish line, uh, NAMIC is uh, absolutely a first among equals in terms of the way that you were able to sustain the pressure to get Congress to do the right thing. Um, Congress doesn't pass a lot of legislation right now. They fight about a lot of things, uh, sometimes for really good reasons. But on this front related to disaster recovery and resilience, um, bipartisan support across the aisle um, leaned in. There's some good policy pieces that are there uh, and um, some really substantial investments that the feds are willing to make prior to disasters. Uh, and as much as I think that's essential, I don't think it's enough. The feds can never fund all the resilience we need in this country. And so we need to uh, incentivize and drive individuals to go do the right thing. So part of my testimony in front of the Ways and Means Committee of the House uh, looked at exploring what would a tax credit uh, for resilient actions for your home look like, something akin to uh, the energy tax credits that had been so successful. What would it look like for someone to use their own money of $3,000 or $5,000 to take very specific actions that move there? Congress will have to decide what they want to do with that. that is, the bill's been introduced to the Shelter Act in both the House and the Senate, um, bipartisan co-sponsors. Those kinds of things tend to take years. The work that you all did supporting the DRA uh, took a number of years. Uh, but it illustrates this point that we cannot simply wait until after a disaster for someone else to pay the bill. True. We have our own sense of accountability to what does it mean to make the investments to improve our home. It's about a bathroom upgrade and it's about ground countertops. I like those when I'm looking at a house to buy. Uh, but it's also about your windows and your roof. Uh, it's about um, how uh, various kinds of edge treatments are put in place and the right caulking goes in so that you can withstand these events. Uh, and it requires an all-of-the-above approach for us to achieve progress on resilience. We can't just wait for the government to do it. We can't just presume that people will do it on their own. I think the insurance industry plays an important role in both educating and driving people towards these more positive approaches. Um, but we can't just look at the next person and says, it'll be your job. It has to be all of our job. That is a, uh, that is a great overview. And I am out of time, but I am not going to let this go without asking you one key question, the hardest one for you to answer, and you have to answer it in 25 words or less. You are head of the National Flood Insurance Program. Right now, you know, we're in the middle of the, I believe, 11th short-term extension of that program. What do you think it'll take to get NFIP reauthorized for the long term? Roy. Mm -hmm. Oh, and only 25 words. Um, Those so are I'm three of them. To Congress. Yeah, yeah, Congress will make sure the program stays viable and is operational. Uh, it usually requires an extra Internal catastrophe for them to lean in and do the right thing. It shouldn't take that. I think the answers are clear. I think the options on the table in terms have all been written. Uh, folks just need to prioritize it, um, particularly in the Senate, uh, and get it all the way to the finish line. It doesn't have to be this hard. That was almost 25 words, but uh, so much wisdom was imparted to our listeners here that uh, we'll give you a break on it and. Uh, Roy, thank you so much for joining us today.
Thanks again, Chuck. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with NAMIC's Federal Legislator of the Year, Representative Ted Budd. The North Carolina congressman has been a strong voice for the property casualty insurance industry and a leader in fighting for NAMIC's insurance regulatory reform priorities. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Republican Sean Duffy announced he will resign from Congress later this month. Duffy and his wife are expecting their ninth child who has developed complications and he has decided to resign to spend time with his family. Duffy served as a ranking member of the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Housing, Community Development and Insurance. NAMIC's Jimmy Grandy says the former Legislator of the Year has long been a champion for state-based insurance regulation. Sean Duffy uh, became an incredibly talented legislator in Congress. First elected in 2010, um, he did not have a great deal of experience with the insurance industry, uh, but he came to spend a lot of time with NAMIX members. And uh, as I've always said, if I can get NAMIX members and members of Congress together, that usually works out really well for NAMIX legislative agenda. And uh, Sean Duffy went on to become the uh, chairman of the Housing and Insurance Subcommittee and uh, became a true champion for the mutual uh, insurance industry as a leader, uh, creating legislation around international guardrails, uh, protecting us from uh, ill-fitting international standards. Uh, he led the effort to help uh, refocus or reform the federal insurance office. Uh, and was also a leader in both the um, flood insurance and terrorism insurance debates. Uh, we have close to 100 members up there in Wisconsin and many of them in his district. And Sean always took the time to meet with our members and to listen to them and understand our issues. So while Congress will be down one um, lumberjack and one former reality TV star. Uh, NAMIC will also be down one true uh, champion for our industry and uh, we'll miss uh, Congressman Duffy's service in Congress. Duffy's last day in office will be September 23rd. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on September 18th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.